Welcome to the Words Matter Library. I'm Katie Barlow. A lot of remarkable things happened on February 14, 2018, in the town of Parkland, Florida. It was remarkable that a teenager took an AR-15 to school and killed 17 of his fellow students. It was remarkable that a football coach named Aaron Feiss was killed protecting the children he taught. It was remarkable that 15-year-old Anthony Borges was shot five times while getting over 20 students to safety. It was remarkable that students who survived, literally living through and experiencing trauma, started to stand up to a world, a country really, that told them to sit down, that started advocating for some solution to prevent children from getting gunned down in their own schools. But there's another remarkable story that started that day that we haven't heard as much about. Journalism teacher Melissa Falkowski helped her students tell the world about what happened to them as journalists. And then they wrote a book about it. The book is called We Say Hashtag Never Again. And that's today's library episode. The book is available on Audible and narrated by Miss Falkowski and the student journalists of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Last week, we talked about journalist pioneer Charlene Hunter-Galt and the legacy she left for storytellers of future generations. These kids, with the help of Miss Falkowski, are a part of her legacy, and they are paving the way for future storytellers. The book starts with Miss Falkowski's experience that Valentine's Day 2018 how she did not know if it was a fire drill at first or a real active shooter, how she rushed her kids back into her classroom and huddled with 19 of them locked in a closet waiting for the police to get there, and then how she helped her students begin to tell their story. Here's Miss Falkowski. Getting to Work on the Newspaper by Melissa Falkowski, MSD Journalism Teacher. The day after the shooting, a candlelight vigil was held at Pine Trails Park. A cross or star was erected for each of the 17 victims. Students and faculty came to honor them. The morning of the vigil, I texted my newspaper students. Today, I have to ask you to do something that will be incredibly difficult. There will be a candlelight vigil today, and we need to cover it. We have a responsibility as journalists to tell the story of what happened and the stories of those who have passed and were injured. No one can tell their stories better than we can. So I'm asking you that if you attend any events or memorials, that you take pictures, even if it is with your phone, so we can document the events and emotions of what has happened. If you can do some interviews to get stories, that would also be helpful. If you are not comfortable, I understand. The vigil is at Pine Trails Park at 2.30. If anyone needs grief counseling, it's all day today and tomorrow at Pine Trails Park Amphitheater. Grief counselors are also at the Coral Springs Gymnasium and the Coral Springs Art Museum. I also want you to know that I love you all, and I am here for you if you need me. Not everyone was ready, but several of them set out to report on the events of the previous day in the vigil. Christy Ma and Nikita Nukala wrote the first two stories for our website. Several days later, I met with some of the staff and editors at the Coral Springs Barnes & Noble to plan our next series of stories and our next print issue of the newspaper. Rebecca Schneid was adamant that we would not give the shooter any additional notoriety by publishing his name in our stories. Initially, I thought that was an overly emotional decision that we would discuss later. However, I came to realize that the national media was going to publicize his name ad nauseum in every story. 
our newspaper had a unique opportunity to tell the school story in our own way. In the end, I never brought it up again. I respected the editor's leadership and we followed their decision. Recently released evidence has shown that the shooter was seeking notoriety and fame. This has reaffirmed their editorial decision for me. As teenagers, they felt that giving him that fame was not responsible journalism, which is something I think the professional press ought to consider when they cover these types of stories. Working on the memorial issue was difficult. I read each of the profiles through many rounds of editing. It was emotionally draining to read and reread about the lives of 17 people we lost and what they meant to those closest to them. It was hard on the entire staff, and there were many moments when the students and I had to take breaks for our own emotional health. There was also a tremendous pressure to get it right. There is almost always some small error in what gets produced in our classroom environment, but this time that seemed unacceptable. We strived for perfection because anything less felt wrong. In the end, we felt proud of the issue and believed we had done something that was healing both for ourselves and for the community. Following the memorial issue, we started planning our fourth and final publication of the school year, which would be titled Taking a Stand. I canceled it three times as we were working. I was tired and drained from working on the memorial issue and in general from the above-normal demands at school on my time and emotions. In the end, it was my husband who convinced me to move forward. Generally speaking, he is not a fan of all the extras that I take on at school, so for him to tell me that I had to do it weighed heavily on my final decision to go through with it. He felt it was important to allow the students to contribute to the conversation on gun control, especially since the entire nation was interested in both their opinions and their coverage of the issue. Ultimately, I felt it was our responsibility to weigh in on the discussions surrounding gun violence and also to document school history beyond the memorial issue. Taking a stand was split between activism and gun violence. It was finished very quickly and is something that I am proud of the students for accomplishing. It is well written and a fitting end to our tumultuous school year. The strength of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School's journalism programs prepared our student journalists to be at the forefront of the rallying cry never again after the devastating tragedy at our school on February 14, 2018. These students were already adept at using their voices to call for change within their school and community. They used their training to speak out on TV, on social media, and in articles published nationally and globally. The nation has been impressed with their strength, poise, rational thinking, and compelling arguments. Many of these students were part of one of the school's various media programs, the newspaper, TV production, the yearbook, or the literary magazine. Every high school in America needs a supported and thriving student-run newsroom. Scholastic journalism programs cultivate student voices and prepare them to become active participants in our democracy as adults. Journalism teaches students to question the world around them and evaluate the reliability of sources as they write about important issues in their community. Student journalists learn the value of exercising their First Amendment right to free speech within their school newsroom environment. Even for students who will not go on to work in journalism or media, these skills prepare them to be our country's engaged and informed voters of the future. The book captures stories from that day, including stories about extraordinary and heroic students and teachers who saved lives. But it is really about so much more than that particular moment in time. The book is about how they dealt with the trauma, how they then covered the stories of the victims and the aftermath while being a part of the story themselves, how they interacted with journalists vying constantly for the next interview or the next quote from a Parkland student, and how important journalism was to telling their story. There's actually a great chapter on how any journalist should interview and interact with students who have gone through a school shooting, or really anyone experiencing trauma. Make them feel comfortable 
Don't ask how they felt in the moment because in a moment of trauma, you aren't really thinking and processing your feelings. And don't push them for a comment if you don't hear back. And they remind you how painful it was to be called names, to be thrust onto the world stage while still experiencing trauma and be told they were faking it. People called them crisis actors and tried to push the narrative that the shooting was all made up and never happened. One person even printed out a picture of the student David Hogg's head, put it on a target, and shot at it while recording himself. But the students kept telling their story. The reporters at the student newspaper talk about the day they realized the world was paying attention when their student newspaper website crashed from all the web traffic. They knew they had an important job to tell the story of the survivors and the aftermath, and they could do it like no one else could. And they did. March for Our Lives was an unprecedented event that got a ton of coverage. But the other story that day was the student journalist from Parkland who waited in and out of the press pool and the student section. They were working alongside reporters from The New York Times, CNN, The Washington Post, the best of the best that they only ever dreamed of working near. And they told the story of the march and the activism just like they told the story of that terrible day in February. The book is about the power of journalism and how these students harnessed modern media to tell stories that needed to be told, all with the help of Miss Falkowski. Here's MSD student Delaney Tarr, who talks about how she saw their job as student journalists and why it was so important to keep on going. Pushed into the Spotlight by Delaney Tarr To me, the worst thing anyone can say to hurt us is that we're just doing this for fame. It doesn't feel good to be called an idiot, or a Nazi, or any number of offensive terms, but to be fame-seeking on the back of tragedy is just so much worse. To be fame-seeking is to be selfish, uncaring of the victims, uncaring of the cause. It means that they think that we wanted this life, that we asked for it. That couldn't be further from the truth. Every day I long for the life I once lived, for our community to be whole again. To just be normal, to not have to live with the heavy weight of grief and the realization that our eagles are dead. Living after a tragedy is so much harder than many realize. It's a struggle to even get out of bed each day, much less face a crowd and maintain some level of composure. We often say we'd give up all of our notoriety in a minute if it meant that this didn't have to happen, and it's the truth. Because honestly, being well-known is hardly enjoyable. It makes every part of our lives so much harder. The anonymity that comes with being a normal person is gone, now replaced with strangers asking for selfies and with constant fear. Fear that, one day, somebody who recognizes us won't be such a big fan. Someday, one of those many haters on the internet will be the person we run into. In that moment, we could be faced with hateful words, or something worse. Of course, fear isn't the only thing we've been forced to experience since becoming public figures. Our entire lives have changed from our careers as students to what we do for fun. It seems now that because we're seen as pundits, faces of an important cause, the fact that we're just regular teens is forgotten. Things like social media, once ways of relieving stress, are now a new pressure that we must live up to. Tweeting and posting for fun is gone, as is getting to relax. Every move we make feels monitored, like the world is waiting for us to misstep. It's stressful knowing that you can't act like a stupid teenager without being vilified. School is no longer a fun way to see your friends, but an impossible balance of work and education, fielding calls from reporters while trying to do an assignment. 
It is not only our work that people care about, it is our personas. We have no freedom, no downtime, no chance to just be us. Rather, we are shuffled from one destination to the next, making rounds and saying the right things to help push our goals. We work down to the minute to organize and strategize what to do next, how best to mobilize the population. Our youth is gone, replaced with an endless cycle of responsibilities. Of course, there are reprieves. With immense recognition comes a sort of privilege. Often, we are introduced to celebrities we've watched on our screens and on stage for years. A meeting with an idol can take some of the weight off, but only temporarily. Because when we get to meet those icons, we are forced to remember why we have the opportunity. These famous people are also looking to us to find a way to make a change that has seemed impossible for so long. We are forced to remember that they are only speaking to us because our peers are dead, and we're doing something about it. Reminders like that, moments like that, they hit hard. We're still grieving, and that's something people often forget. Amid the whirlwind of marches and press and television is a group of heartbroken kids. We barely took the time to recover, much less healthily process our emotions. Since day one, it has been a nonstop battle and a fight that we shouldn't be leading. But we are leading it, because circumstances forced us to step up. We've been propelled onto the national stage where we are open to a level of criticism that no teenager should face. We are treated simultaneously like adults and children, neither respected nor understood. But that just seems to be part of being an activist so close to the cause. Sure, this is a movement based in more than emotion, but the pain of loss is where it lies. The hurt and grief are why we go out there in front of the cameras every day. It fuels us to keep going even when we want nothing more than to hide away. It is exhausting, it is frightening, but it is also essential. We do it anyway because despite how hard it may be to be a celebrity, it's the right thing. We stepped up, we spoke out, not for fame, but for friends, for family. The fight for gun control is so important to us that our personal lives are a worthy sacrifice, no matter how difficult it can be. Everything we give up, every luxury or part of us, simply makes the cause matter that much more. That does make the victories more rewarding, though. There are moments when the celebrity status is beneficial. It's not in the special privilege, but in the way it can inspire those around us. The way it motivates people, just like us, to work hard and become activists in their own communities. Meeting someone like Halsey is cool, but meeting a little girl who is excited just to speak to you about her own activism means so much more. Connecting and reaching out directly to people in a way that only someone with hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers can do. That is what this movement is about. This has never been for the celebrity. In fact, it's been the opposite. Not to seem distant and untouchable, but to seem real, to be genuine, to make true connections with our peers and inspire them to do their own work. Rather than celebrities, we are examples. We are proof that you can do it too. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.